Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. good morning. It's great to be back here once again. And actually, this Sunday in the calendar is known as Low Sunday because very often church attendance drops dramatically in comparison to Easter. So this is the Sunday that all preachers dread preaching on. But I'm glad to see that the attendance has not fallen drastically this morning. And it's great to see all your smiling faces. So you must have had a a fairly decent week um, this week. But it's good to be back and it's good to be able to gather around the precious word of truth together. For the last number of weeks, you might remember if you've been following along with us, we have been working through the Beatitudes, those blessings which Jesus spoke at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, which point to the characteristics which we as followers of Jesus, as followers of Christ and children of God should possess and are are empowered to possess by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As that series came to an end last week, as we celebrated together the suffering and victorious Christ on Easter Sunday, the pastoral team had a a conversation in the run-up to it. What what are we going to do next? What do we feel that God is asking of us? And where do we feel that God is leading us as a people? And a decision was made for the the next number of weeks, and we're going to pause a couple of times along the way for some specials such as Father's Day and Children's Day and things like that. But for the next number of weeks, we will be continuing to work through the Sermon on the Mount together. Perhaps Jesus' most famous discourse, perhaps his most famous sermon Oswald Chambers, who was, many of you may know, was the writer of the Christian classic, My Utmost for His Highest. He, he states that the Sermon on the Mount is a statement of life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way in us. And I know that here at McGeehan, we long for the Holy Spirit to have his way in us. We long for the Holy Spirit to be our guide and to work through us as his people and so it seems like a natural fit for us to work through this sermon on the mind this wonderful challenging encouraging but also at times difficult but always freeing sermon of our lord together and of good news just as last sunday it was resurrection sunday so too is today Resurrection Sunday. You may have noticed that we sang Thine Be the Glory. I got a wee word in my ear from somebody who will remain nameless, but they said we didn't sing Thine Be the Glory on Easter Sunday. So we sang it today and it fits because every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday because the tomb is still empty. The tomb will always be empty. Christ is still victorious. He will always be victorious. He has risen with the keys of death and hell in his hand and we are still more than conquerors through him. And we gather this morning as hopeful but also hope-filled people, knowing that with Christ and because of Christ that the best is yet to come. And with this hope comes a desire that we would be more and more conformed to his likeness until we are made completely like him in the life that is yet to come.
all that to say, as we continue pressing on and leaning in to the kingdom and the lessons which we learn from the Sermon on the Mount, Karen has already read for us these words this morning, but let us hear these words following on one more time, because as Karen said, they're some of her favourite verses, and they're good stuff. And I know for a fact they're some of Gary's favourite verses as well. It says this. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town, or as most translations say, a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen? Amen. Great. Now, we've, we've heard the phrase... We've probably used the phrase, but the comment that someone is the salt of the earth is one of those really underrated compliments, which should mean a lot more to the recipient than it normally does. Anybody here ever use that phrase, that they're the salt of the earth? Anybody ever had it used about them? It's a, no, no, no. Audrey, you're the salt of the earth, right? Whenever we hear this compliment, whenever, maybe it's just because we're British, right? But whenever we hear this compliment given about ourselves, we normally shrink, shrink back in, a, in what we would call a typical British awkwardness. And we try to find some reason why the other person is wrong to call us that. Oh, well, if only you knew. If only you knew the thoughts that I think. If only you knew the things that I did. If only you knew what I was really like. Yet whenever the compliment is given, it is because we or someone has noticed something different. And different's not always bad, right? Sometimes different is really, really good. Something extraordinary about the way in which we or they conduct themselves in and live their lives. To be called the salt of the earth is a compliment, not just for these reasons, but it is also a description which Jesus himself ascribes to his true followers, to his disciples, those who have counted the cost as we were looking at last week and taken up their cross and followed after him. And it, being called the salt of the earth and him calling us as his people the salt of the earth is not so much a description as it is a command to live in a particular way. Jesus, as always, was speaking in language that people understood. Whilst our, our media has told us that too much salt is bad for us, that as a nation we need to cut down on our salt intake, and if we don't look after ourselves and buy reduced salt products, we're all headed for an early grave. That's, that's what we get, right? Anybody's doctor told them that they need to cut down on the salt a little bit? I'm seeing a few nods, not a lot of raised hands, but... Yeah, I just don't go and see my doctor, so he can't tell me. <laughs> but the mention of salt in Jesus' time, in, in the time of his earthly ministry, painted a very different picture 
in people's head than perhaps it paints in ours today. You see, salt was connected in people's minds in three, with three special qualities. Okay, the first one is this. It was connected with purity. So the first one is purity. It was the Romans who believed that there was nothing more useful than the sun and salt. In fact, it was a very well used and was a popular saying at the time. And when spoken in the original Latin, which I am certainly not going to even try and do, whenever the words, there is nothing more useful than sun and salt, were speaking in the Latin, it almost sounded a little bit like a jingle. You know, a jingle off a, a, wee, a wee advert or something like that. You know, we see it on the TV that somebody saved just eat. Right? It would have sounded like that, but better. Um, and it was believed that salt was the purest of all things. For it came from the purest of things. Salt came from the sun and from the sea. There is nothing, there is nothing more useful than sun and salt. So when Jesus, when Jesus calls his followers to be the salt of the earth, in order to do that, they must be an example of purity. We must be an example of purity. Not in isolation from the rest of the world, but an example of purity to the world whilst living amongst it. Taking a stand for the sake of the kingdom. Living lives which are countercultural and are in line with the teachings of Scripture. Lives in which the fruit of the Spirit that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, where the fruit of the Spirit is evident. Lives which are characterized and by holiness and purity of heart and actions in a world which prefers self, prefers cheap thrills, prefers indulgence, and prefers quick fixes. When he's calling us to be the salt of the earth, he's calling us to purity. But he's also calling us to be preservatives. Whilst in our modern times, preservatives are added to food in order to make them last longer and to ensure that they're able to be packaged up and sold in bulk and mass produced, lasting longer and therefore encouraging more sales, keeping the wheels of capitalism going on and on and on. Salt in the ancient world was used to keep things from going bad and rotten, to hold decay from coming and putrefaction, holding putrefaction at bay. Meat, for example, you may be seen it on the TV or on shows or even depicted in the, the history books that have um, pictures in them. Meat was hung and covered in salt. It was hung and covered in salt to ensure that it did not rot, that it did not decay, and was preserved until every single part of the meat could be utilised. So, if, as Christian, if you're a vegetarian, I'm very sorry for that illustration. <laughs> but I love your meat instead. So if, as Christians, we are called to be salt, our very presence in any situation or in any setting in which we find ourselves, our very presence should help to point and help others to be, 
better versions of themselves and make it easier for them not to decay and to become bitter and to become and fall into immoral behaviours, but rather to thrive and make it easier for them to be good and avoid corrupt behaviours. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a great preacher, said this, he took it further, he took the thought further and he said, you are to see of men, and whenever the older preachers, by the way, whenever they speak of men, they're speaking of men and women, they're speaking of humankind. You are, caught, you are to save men, render possible their salvation by hindering corruption on that side of their nature that is distinctively of the earth. Indeed, some of you will have heard of the Reverend George Sharp, the founder of the Church of the Nazarene in the United Kingdom over in Glasgow. And he stated that a passion for lost souls should be the chief element in the spirit life of all who own the name of Christ. We are called to be preservatives. We are called to preserve others. We are called to, yes, point them to the way of Christ, but we're also called to live such lives before them that something just clicks. That they're stopped in their tracks. That they notice that there's something a little bit different. And again, remember, difference not always a bad thing. But they look and they go, I want a little bit of that. Jude in his in his letter, Jude is perhaps the, the forgotten epistle of, of the New Testament. It's the, the book just before Revelation. And Jude takes that further and he, he calls us as the people of God to save others by snatching them out of the fire. To preserve them. To snatch them out of the fire. And as salt, as preservatives, we have a responsibility and Jesus is given to us a responsibility to ensure that we do our utmost to ensure that people do not go into the spiritual decay, but that they are snatched from the fire. So purity, preservatives, and I'm not Presbyterian enough for the third one to be a P as well. So the third one is flavour. Flavour. Who, who loves a little bit of salt on their food? Oh, somebody just, I'll not say who, but somebody just went, oh, I. Oh, I. We love a bit of salt on our food. Who can imagine a bag of chips without some salt on top? Stinking. Oh, all right. Somebody can. Somebody can. Keep the opinion to yourself for the sake of the illustration, please. Right? But we love... We love a wee bit of salt and vinegar on our chips. And if people don't like vinegar, they always tend to, almost always tend to like salt on top of their chips. Or who can, who can imagine fav- flavourless Pringles? Just Pringles without a flavour on top. I know that Audrey loves, a, loves to pop the top of a can of Pringles. Or have you ever heard of ready not salted crisps? It's ready salted crisps, is it? 
We all love a little bit of salt. The thought of no salt sometimes is just a little bit bonkers, isn't it? Salt brings flavour and without flavour, food and life can be bland whenever it's supposed to be savoured and enjoyed. They also say that whenever you reach a certain stage of life, the amount of salt that you tend to put on your food tends to increase because your taste buds are not quite what they used to be. So in order to counteract that and to, in order to make sure that there's a little bit more flavour in that food, you overcompensate with the salt. My granny Robinson was mustard. <laughs> Absolute mustard. She used to have dinner with her salt. If you understand what I'm saying, it was almost like it was dinner with her salt. We like to add salt because salt adds flavour. And as the people of God, we are called to be to the world that which salt is to food. And I would argue that salt on your food is a real diffuser of joy. It brings flavour. It's lovely. Not too much. If there's any doctors watching, I'm sorry. But we're called to be to the world what salt is to food. A diffuser of joy. Something which brings flavour. And as the people of God, though, whilst we're called to be the salt of the earth, if anybody here is under the age of 40 or has children themselves, they'll know that salty has a different meaning in the world today as well. We're not called to be salty as the world would define salty. If somebody's salty, they're a wee bit uppity, they're, they're angry, they're mouthy, they're agitated, um, or just plain sassy. Sometimes people can be salty, and I see a mother turning to a daughter and going, you're just sassy, right? In the world, salty, salty can mean that as well, and I just wanna get any confusion out of the way, but we're called not to be salty in that way, but we're called to be salty by living lives of purity, we're called to be salty by helping others to thrive and snatching them from the fire. We're called to be the fusers of joy and dispelling gloom wherever we go and whoever we are with. Turn to the person beside you or the person behind you and say, you're the salt of the earth. <laughs> And salt, salt wasn't the only descriptor which Jesus used to describe his followers in this short passage. He also commanded that we would be lights into and of a dark world. Another preacher of old William Barclay said, When Jesus commanded his followers to be the lights of the world, he demanded nothing less than that they should be like himself. For Jesus himself had said in John 9 and verse 5, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. If you open up John's gospel, in the first chapter we see of how the light came into a dark world. Speaking of Jesus, of how the word became flesh and dwelt among us and how he was and is light in the darkness and the call which Jesus gives to his disciples 
to you and to me is that we would be the light of the world. In his physical absence, that we would be the light of the world. But whilst that rolls off the tongue, and it's something that we all know, and whilst it might sound good, what does it actually mean? What does it actually mean to be the light of the world? Well, firstly, light is something which is meant to be seen. Do you ever get shouted at, or have you ever shouted at somebody for leaving the light on when it didn't need to be on? Again, I'm causing lots of family disputes today. It's, <laughs> it's not intentional, but you know, the shoe fits, right? Because electricity is expensive. I used to laugh at my father whenever he told me off for leaving a light on, and I'm like, come on. Now I pay the bills. I'm like, Chloe, turn the light off. Turn the light off. We'll watch TV in darkness. It'll be all right. See, there, there's no doubt in that light is something which is meant to be seen. And it's pointless if it's not being seen, isn't it? There's no doubt that in following Jesus in secret or on our own terms, that, that that's, that's futile and it will not lead to lasting change, not only of those around us, but also of ourselves as well. We are to let the light of Christ shine through us for all to see. It's supposed to be seen. It's not supposed to be hidden. And it is to shine so brightly within us that something changes and other people begin to notice. They might not understand what it is, but they know that it's there. And it's different and that it's visible. Have you ever come across somebody, or maybe you were this individual, that whenever they met Jesus, you could just tell that it was real. That you could just tell there was almost like a 180 turn, 180 degree turn. It was almost as if their life orientation had changed completely. It wasn't that they said that they prayed a prayer and that nothing changed. It's that they prayed a prayer and that they'd meant it. And that the Holy Spirit had done a work and was continuing to do a work in their lives. And it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter whether we're in church or whether we're in work, whether we're at home or we're out for dinner, whether we're at university or whether we're at the golf course. Our light should shine brightly regardless of the environment in which we find ourselves. We should always be the same person, fearlessly living for Christ, not hiding who we are or hiding what we believe, no matter where we are or who we are with. And I understand that sometimes it's quite scary to stand and let your light shine before other people. I know that sometimes we can be fearful because believe it or not, I'm human being as, as well, right? I know that's funny, Mervyn, right? Believe it or not, I'm a human being as well. Sometimes we care too much about what other people think, don't we? Sometimes we don't want to, oh, well, you know, I don't want don't to say anything because I don't want them to fall out with me or I don't want them to take it thick or, or maybe, maybe your job just dictates that you're not allowed to as well, which is a very real thing in the world today. But even whether we can say something or not, 
our light should still be shining brightly, regardless of where we are or who we are with. For our light is something which is meant to be seen. So if you know today that you're hiding it a little bit around certain people, I really want to encourage you. I'm not here to hit you over the head with this thing because Jesus never did anything like that. He never hit people over the head. But I really want to encourage you and draw alongside you and say, it'll be worth it. Just let your light shine. Let your light shine because God will do incredible things. And if you feel like your light, or maybe you feel like your light is, is starting to dim, I really want to encourage you, press into Christ. Press into Christ whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light and who delights in helping each one of us grow in holiness and in purity that our light might shine before all humankind. So light's something that's meant to be seen. Light is also a guide. Chris Martin's voice for the iconic Coldplay song Yellow provides the soundtrack for this one and you'll also be glad that I'm not gonna sing it as well, but it goes, lights will guide you home and ignite your bones and I will try to fix you. That was really hard not to sing, really hard. But a light makes the way clear. It acts as a guide. Whether it's turning your light on in the middle of the night so that you can go to the bathroom, uh, which is something that I'm starting to reach an age which happens a wee bit more frequently, which is never a good thing. Or you're turning on your torch on your phone to help you see something better or to guide your path. Light guides through darkness, does it? Yeah. Light guides through darkness. And as followers of Christ, part of our calling is to make the path clear for others. And that requires us to be light in dark places, to be examples of kingdom principles and making a stand for goodness and for the right thing, even when it would be easier for us not to. Perhaps now more than ever, the world needs the people of God to be its guiding light, to be a voice for the voiceless, to take a stand and not be swayed by popular opinion. The reality is that what we tolerate today, the things on which we remain silent but know to be immoral and wrong and against the will of the Father, what we tolerate today will have normal place in society in 10 years time. See, the wilderness is crying out for a voice. The world is dying for the church to step into its prophetic calling in love and to be light in the darkness, to be the people and guide that Christ has called us to be as his ambassadors. And that often doesn't start with national change because it sounds very high and lofty and mighty, doesn't it? It sounds almost very unattainable. But the encouraging thing is very often that these, these movements do not start with national change. But they start with little everyday changes within our spheres of influence. It starts with me and you using the voice and the positions and the influences that God has given 
to us. Each one of us here have a sphere of influence. The people who we come in contact with throughout the day. Perhaps it's our families, perhaps it's our work colleagues, perhaps it's people down the gym. As you can see, I frequent the gym quite a lot. Um, what are you laughing for? Um, but we all have spheres of influence, don't we? We all have spheres of influence. And we are encouraged, yea, commanded by Christ to make those changes, those little everyday changes within the spheres of influence which he has gifted to us. The people you come in contact with, you do not come in contact with by accident or coincidence. The Lord is always at work. So light is something which is meant to be seen, light is a guide, but light can also be a warning. It is all also sometimes necessary for us to bring warning to others. I, I miss my childhood bedroom. And uh, Pastor Joanne lived four doors up, so you're going to know what I'm talking about here. On a clear day, there was a wee light. We, we lived on top of a cliff. Um, don't worry, there was enough of a gap. We weren't going to be eroded away. But we lived on top of a, a cliff overlooking the Irish Sea. On a clear day, you could see the land of Scotland across, uh, across the horizon. And whenever it was particularly stormy, there was a wee lighthouse in, I believe, in the Maidens. I couldn't find out for it uh, exactly. But there was a wee lighthouse in the Maidens which used to guide ships and used to tell them that amongst the stormy weather that there were rocks around about that particular part and that they were to avoid that particular part in this storm where the visibility was low because otherwise their ship would crash into it and there could be dire consequences. Right? But as a lighthouse warns ships of upcoming rocks and hazards, so too are we to warn others, not just of the pen penalty of unrepentant sin, but actually to draw alongside others and to warn them against making the same mistakes that we have made or we have seen others make ourselves. And I, I want to tease that out a tiny bit because I know that we're, time's getting away from us, but I want to tease that out a tiny little bit and ask the question, who are you drawing alongside? Who do you have drawing alongside you? Part of being the light of the world is pouring that light into the lives of other people and allowing others to pour the light into you as well. There are so many biblical examples of this and modern, modern leadership calls it mentorship. But the scriptures reveal it in so many different ways that as Jesus had his disciples, he would teach them and he would pour into them as Paul would pour into young Timothy and Timothy would pour into others in the church. It's really important that we have people pouring into our lives, but also that we pour into others as well. Our calling is that of a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. And perhaps it's time that we stop hiding. Perhaps it's time to lift the bowl off and step into the calling which Christ 
has placed upon each and every one of us. Salt of the earth, light of the world. It's time for us to get about the kingdom business. And this is the kingdom business. Anybody heard of C.F. Andrews? Right? Very few. But C.F. Andrews was a British Anglican missionary from Newcastle upon time. And he went to India. And he became a personal friend of Gandhi. I'd say you probably heard of Gandhi if you haven't heard of C.F. Andrews. And Gandhi affectionately nicknamed him Christ's faithful apostle. And C.F. Andrews wrote a spectacular chapter in one of his books in which he contains this powerful assertion. He says, We have seen that the central themes of all Christ's teaching are that God is our Father and that we are the dwellers in his kingdom. We must, therefore, if his blessing is to be ours, seek to attain to an inner character which shall enable us to love God as his own dear children and live in love and peace with all mankind. We must love one another with a pure heart, fervently. That love must humble and tender and strong and pure, must be rather humble and tender and strong and pure and ready to suffer. Only thus is our true life in this world as God's children made possible. Only thus can we acknowledge his kingship and hallow his name. So let's get about the kind of business. Let us love one another and love God with a pure heart and let's do it with all that we have. For then and only then can we be the salt and light which we have been called to be. So let's get about the kingdom business. Let's be salty in the right way for Christ and let our lights shine before men that they too might glorify our Father in heaven. There's so many songs that I wanted to, to close with and I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We're going to sing Mighty the Save, the bridge of which goes shine your light and let the whole world see we're singing for the glory of the risen King. I wanted to sing this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Um, but we, we opted for this one instead. All that to say, it's great to sit under the word. It's great to hear the word. You might not think it's great, but it is, right? It's great to sit under the instruction of the word. But there's no point sitting under the instruction if we don't respond. And if we don't do anything about it. James says it's like looking in a mirror, walking away and instantly forgetting what you look like. So I want to challenge each one of us, myself included, that as we sing this song, we would not just sing it. But that it would be a prayer. A prayer of our hearts. And whenever we get to the bridge that says, shine your light, let the whole world see, that that would be an acclamation of what we're going to go and do with the help and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So everyone needs compassion. Let's stand together as we sing.